You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. It's great to have you here today and to celebrate even uh, in this season. We call it Advent. I don't know if you've ever heard of that word before. Advent is a time of preparation uh, in a lot of Christian churches. It's about a month prior to Christmas itself. And it's a time, the word Advent means appearing, God showing up, and the fact that he showed up on Christmas itself in such a miraculous way, but that he also is going to show up again. And uh, we can't, uh, we look at for that as well. And boy, there are days, there are weeks, there are years. I'm praying harder than ever. God, please show up. Do you know what I mean? Today, we're going to be looking at how God does show up to a prophet named Elijah in the midst of his expectations, what he thought was going to happen, what did happen, and then how God shows up. But before we do, I just wanted to uh, share a couple of things that we at Thrive were able to do with others. One is, I wanted to uh, share with you, there are jillions of gifts that we were able to help give for foster children in our area, along with a number of others. And I know, thank you to all who gave those gifts. Uh, I know, let's see, Bill was at a wrapping party where I think he's out uh, doing security right now. Uh, a wrapping party for the 87 different children that got these gifts. Isn't that great? Uh, 87 kids. So thank you so much for that. You can see some of them there. And then this week also, uh, Dan, who's a teacher at uh, LAMP, which is the Lee um, Adolescent Mothers Program. It's a school for, uh, for young uh, women in high school yet who, well, are going to be mothers or who are mothers. And so we help support their books and breakfast the last day of school. And you can see Dan right there serving it up. And the girls had a great time, about 40 or so. About 40. And it just made a real difference for them, too. So you brighten their holidays as well. Okay? Just want to thank you for those things. Let's pray. Lord God, this time of the year is a time of giving and receiving, and also a time that's totally hectic with high expectations and frustrations and everything else wrapped up. I pray today, Lord, this message of you being with us, you being one with us, you being right here with us in such an amazing way that you would, Lord God, minister to the hearts of people in a variety of ways. There are those here who are in the midst of a blue time of the year, a time of loneliness or depression. And there are others who are just in the midst of anticipation and others in anxiety, but that your word to Elijah is a word to us today and that you speak and minister personally and profoundly to each of us through this message. And we pray, Lord God, that you'd fill this place in every house of worship across our community this week, that people would come to understand and comprehend a little more deeply and more profoundly the magically miraculous, the stupendous mystery called the incarnation that you, O oh God, the infinite, would become finite, that you would become flesh, one with us, that you would choose to do so out of love for us, Lord, and what that all means. And we pray, Lord, that that would touch many of our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends this week and that we would be able to do that as well, to be those who are heralds of that good news for them. 
All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, um, we're looking again at this series called God With Us, and that God is with us in all sorts of circumstances. In the last few weeks, we've looked at this, that God is with us um, in the valley. And we looked at Psalm 23 and how he's in the midst of the valley. God with us in our giving and how in our giving and receiving, God is present. He's the one who's really using us for his kingdom's sake. Last week, it was God with us. Let's see. In the valley, in our giving. And why am I just having a blank spot right now? It's pretty bad when the preacher himself forgets his own message a week later. God who was with us um, in all, uh, God with us in, oh my goodness, that is just really embarrassing. What? In the storm. Yes. And that was from Acts chapter 27. Oh my God. Somebody does. The one who's saying it can't even remember it. That's pretty bad. God with us in the storm, where Paul was in the midst of the storm, and how God was with him and with the sailors and the soldiers in the book of Acts. Today, we're going to be God with us in the wilderness. Okay. And Tuesday night, Christmas Eve, we're going to actually look at the passage, the profundity of what's called the incarnation, John chapter 1, where it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what that means. You know, that right there was the most revolutionary statement when John wrote it in his gospel to the people of that day and age. Just totally blew away all the philosophies, all the religions, everything else. And we're going to look at what that means Christmas Eve. So invite some friends and family to that. I think we're going to have a good crowd that night and to celebrate Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, we're getting to the story, though this week, that um, I think a lot of people feel like they probably are in the midst of as well. Um, I was told by a pastor friend of mine, uh, Bill Woolsey, that right now in the United States, there's 300 and some million people, and he'd say, there are about 300 and some million different gods. Because <laughs> everybody's kind of creating their own way and their own version and their own handling of it. We live in a polytheistic time, in a relativistic time, in a time where it's like, well, whatever works for you works for you. And the question in these times and these days, when we're in the midst of this, is like, well, then how do I know what I believe is right? How do I know I'm not just worshiping a projection of what I want? How am I know that I'm not just treating God as kind of my therapist or life coach? Or, you know, is there more to it? How do I know? How do I know what's true and what's not? You won't find it on Twitter and any social media platform. It's just a bunch of stuff thrown at you, and you're caught in this swirl of things. And um, that's kind of the question that Elijah was wanting God to answer firmly and fully in his day and age. Elijah was a prophet who spoke and had a ministry in northern Israel at a time of total polytheism and paganism and everything else going on. I don't know if you realize this. The children of Israel were not these wonderfully pious, wonderful, <gasps> prayerful, dutiful, humble people um, all the time that they 
the rule of thumb, if you look at the Old Testament scriptures, is that the rule of thumb is that 90% of the time, 90% of God's people were worshiping idols. <laughs> yeah. Okay? 90% of the time, 90% of them. But Elijah was so frustrated and so ready to show who the true God was, and he sets up his time and his day, a showdown, a throwdown between the gods, you know? He was going to show who was the true God, the real God. On Mount Carmel, he challenged the 850 prophets of Baal, 850 against one, on the top of Mount Carmel to that showdown. And it's kind of like he rented out, you know, Dallas Cowboys Stadium, brought the entire crowd in, and on cue, on demand, he forced God's hand, he forced Baal's hand, the storm god, the god of the Canaanites, and said, okay, who's going to bring fire down from heaven? And Baal, of all the gods, should be able to do it pretty well. If he's the storm god, just one lightning bolt would do it, right? And that's what he does. He says, I'm going to prove for once and for all the God of the covenant, the God of Israel, Yahweh is his name, is the true God, and Baal is nothing. 1 Kings 18. At the end of it, that's what he does. Boom. God miraculously brings lightning down from the skies, burns up the entire altar and everything around it, and the Baal God could do nothing. He slays the 850 prophets of Baal, and then he runs. In the power of the Spirit, it says, Elijah ran to the city of Jezreel, which is the capital of Samaria at the time. It'd be like running to Washington, D.C., and he gets into the city, and he expects to see a ticker tape parade for himself because he has just proven the one, the only, Elijah has proven the one, the true God. And he runs into, and he thought, oh, the people are going to revolt against Ahab and Jezebel, the king and the queen who are so terrible and mean and ugly. Or maybe even better, Ahab and Jezebel themselves repent and turn to the living God. And everybody's going to finally, once for all, worship the one true God because he has shown himself to be the only one. He gets into Jezreel. And instead of the applause of the crowds, he hears a death threat from Jezebel herself saying, <laughs> may God kill me if I don't kill you and do to you what you did to those 850 prophets of Baal. Okay? And that's where we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 19 now. It's a long reading, I know. But this story is something else. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more so if I do not make your life as life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. 
And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time, and he touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and he ate and drank, and went on the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint him to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu be put to death. Shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha be put, uh, put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So from this passage, we're going to learn two different things. God's compassionate wisdom to Elijah. And then secondly, God's approachable presence. And that is what makes the difference between the true God and every other God, goddess, idea, spirituality out there. God's compassionate wisdom and God's approachable presence. First of all, his compassionate wisdom. You know, isn't it amazing? This story is... Uh, I don't know if you're feeling this story or not, or if you've had times in your life that you feel like you are with Elijah in this. Because Elijah, it says he went to Beersheba. He was scared for his life. He goes to this town of Beersheba, and he lets go of his servant there. Now, why did he do that? Because he was saying, I quit. I'm no longer a prophet. The only reason he had a servant was because he had, was a prophet, and he was basically forsaking his calling. He said he'd had enough. I'm done. No more of this stuff. And then, after he left that, he goes out into the wilderness. And he says, in 1 Kings 19.4, It's enough. Take away my life, O Lord, for I'm no better than my father's. This is a prophet of God. Do you understand this? 
This is a God, this is the prophet that God has called, and he has brought him to the point. He has come to the point where he doesn't want to live anymore. This is as far as down despair and despondency that I know of. Now, there are people that might be uh, listening online today or here even this morning, even though we're not a giant crowd, who have struggled or even have contemplated the whole idea of suicide. Well, it's not like a foreign concept in the Bible that such despair and despondency can happen. At the same time, though, notice that I, Elijah does not presume to have the right to take his own life. He knows at least one thing in the midst of his despair, that it's not his to decide. He asks God to do it, but he won't do it himself. If you are one of those people who I'm talking to right now that has gotten to that point, that has thought about this stuff, you're in good company with Elijah. I don't think that it, I, there's nobody here that's going to say, oh my goodness, I can't believe you thought about that. And especially not me. Look, human nature is human nature. And we see with what Elijah's going through, I have no idea what you might have gone through that brought you there. But one thing I want you to know is talk to someone. You know, don't hold on to it yourself. Don't get yourself out just into the middle of despondency, cutting off all ties and just going like, oh. We are here for each other, and we want to, to be able to minister to you. We don't care about uh, the fact that you might be feeling this way in the sense of it doesn't shock us that that can happen to even someone who is a person of faith like Elijah. We just want to minister to you with some of God's wisdom and compassion that he shows to Elijah in this passage. Notice he doesn't rebuke Elijah for thinking this. He doesn't call on Elijah and scold him in any ways. He doesn't tell him what he should and shouldn't do right away. God has compassion on him. Now, um, if you wanted to kind of have a shorthand, like, diagnosis for what Elijah is going through here, I think the old-fashioned term that I remember growing up with would probably fit better than any of the modern kind of categories of anxiety, depression, yada, 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 that comes out. That's called a nervous breakdown. Have you ever heard? Do you, we don't use that term anymore, but I think it fits here. And in fact, some psychologists are saying that's a pretty good term to use because it's much more than depression that Elijah was facing here, although he was depressed. And it's much more than just fearing over his life. It's the fact that he is right now at the point, physically, emotionally, spiritually, absolutely bankrupt, exhausted. At the end of his rope, it's all breaking. The best way to describe it is a nervous breakdown. What's fascinating is... Um, in 1996, they did a survey in the United States, I think it's uh, from psych American psychologists, found 26% of Americans felt that an impending nervous breakdown was coming on in their lives. And you go like, yeah. well, it's actually what they've, they've kind of brought that term up a few different times, and it's increasing, increasing, increasing. I would say even from 96 to today, it's probably well over 30%. So if 
you're feeling this, if you've gone through this, if you've been there, you're right with Elijah in this. And that's why I think there's such good news with how God has compassionate wisdom in handling Elijah at one of the most um, broken places any human being has ever been in all of Scripture. And what we're going to find is that in his compassionate wisdom, God does a few different things. A, first of all, he ministers to his physical needs. Did you notice that in this story? An angel wakes him up, touches him, and does the angel then say, Fear not, Elijah, God is with you. He doesn't talk to him right away. And did you know the angel doesn't say, Okay, Elijah, you want to talk about this? Kind of share. He doesn't start with that. He starts with his physical needs. He had baked him some bread. He has some water. He goes, come and eat. You're too weary for the journey. God is wise enough to know that sometimes depression and exhaustion and an emotional breakdown is just coming on us because we are physical creatures and we are exhausted. Sometimes you just need a nap. Sometimes you need to rest and to stop. Sometimes you just need to be taken care of for a while. You know, um, back in 1987 through 92, I was a campus pastor right out of seminary at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And about two to three years into my ministry there, starting it from scratch, a college student came in who was from Ohio um, so way out of state, brilliant young man, dedicated Christian. And he walks into the chapel for the first time to talk with me, and his eyes are just like freaking out because he's been having panic attacks. He can't figure out why he's having them. He is just, all of a sudden, this huge amount of despair is coming over him, and he is struggling with all of this stuff, and he's looking at me going like, you're a pastor, uh, I need to talk to you because I'm scared. I'm scared I'm losing my faith, I'm not sure why this is happening. And all I knew, at least, I didn't know much, is like, okay, are you sleeping okay? Are you eating? And so for the next two to three weeks, I am just meeting with him on a regular basis to make sure that I'm, he's eating well, he comes to my house, we go and exercise, he is sleeping okay, we get his laundry done, I'm just taking, he is going to see a psychiatrist at the university itself, and the psychiatrist has um, given him some medication as well, but the sad thing about this whole story is his evangelical Christian friends in the group that he was in looked at him and did their diagnosis of the situation. And they went down their kind of checklist. So, have you prayed enough? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you pleaded the blood? Um, have you uh, confessed your sins? And their diagnosis was, you must not believe hard. There's no Christian should ever have to take a pill or a medication, or anything. This is all a spiritual faith issue, and you must not have enough faith. And I was livid. They were not being scriptural or biblical at all. This passage is showing that. Do you understand that? 
There are those dimensions, but it's not what you, you are not just a spiritual issue to God. You are a creature of God. He has given you a physical body. And sometimes exhaustion is because you are exhausted. Sometimes it's about your creatureliness. Sometimes you just need a walk on the beach and a good meal and a friend and a companion. And God knows that. And he starts here. When Elijah is absolutely broken to meet him in his physical needs. Thankfully, this young man got the help he needed, realized the Christian friends that he had were being unchristian at the time. He connected, and three years later, he graduated. He's now an anesthesiologist in Texas somewhere. And 20 years later, I got a note from him when I was in um, Gainesville, um, Florida, thanking me for that time. Just because I realized he's a creature and he needs his physical needs met and he needs a friend and he needs somebody to talk to and we're going to take care of him holistically. No big deal in one sense. So don't freak out when people freak out around you. Just be there for them. Meet the needs that you can. Let God cure. You just care. You understand? God is the cure giver. You are the caregiver. God shows his wise compassion to us because he knows that we are his creatures. He made us. He loves us as creatures. And then secondly, what happens in this passage, it's amazing, is God listens. So 1 Kings 19.9, There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, whenever, there's a, whenever God asks a question in the Bible, you realize, right, he's not looking for information. <laughs> you know, when I ask a question, honey, where is the, you know, <laughs> I ask that about 20 times a day. I am looking for information. I don't see it. I don't know it. I don't have it. But when God asks a question, he's not looking for information. He already knows Elijah better than Elijah knows. He's looking for dialogue. He's looking for relationship. He's letting Elijah say what he needs to say. He knows that he's in a relationship with Elijah in such a way that Elijah needs to speak, needs to vent, needs to spill it out, needs to call it out. And that's what Elijah does. The next verse, Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. This comes up twice. It's not like once was enough. He has to say the same thing again and again. God knows it. He has compassion on him. And what's amazing to me is that God doesn't look at him and just start lecturing right away. He lets him speak, right? Even though Elijah is distorted in his view of what's going on and how terrible it is, he doesn't look at him and say, wait a minute. You're thinking that what you did at Mount Carmel and what happened there was going to the, that the spectacular, the amazing, that you were going to change an entire nation just with one miraculous show of my power. Boom. Everybody changes. And when they didn't, all of a sudden you panic, you freak out, and you can't handle it. He doesn't go into that with him. He doesn't handle him that way. 
And he also doesn't say, wait a minute, I think that's called catastrophizing. I, only I, am left, as if the whole weight of the world and the kingdom of God is on your shoulders. When the reality finally at the end of the passage is, there's 7,000, Eli. You're not alone, Elijah. There's 7,000. But God allows Elijah to vent. And he doesn't respond right away. And finally, then, God speaks gently to him. The ultimate answer to life's downturn is to rediscover God's amazing, incredible word to you. A gentle word of assurance. So if you're thinking right now about Christianity, or you know somebody who is, just think about how... God, in his wisdom, shows in the scriptures themselves how he handles people who are falling apart, broken, having a struggle, okay? He does not. And let me tell you, when someone is facing, who is depressed and despondent and struggling and just panic-stricken or whatever in life, how you respond to them will probably say more about your worldview than anything else. If you're a materialist, that is, if you think the world is just, that human beings are just kind of um, a unique collection of chemical reactions, okay? If you look at it through biology, physiology, um, chemistry, and that's all you see, that there is only, that what matters is only matter itself, then you're probably going to respond to somebody who's depressed and saying, here, take a pill, and that should solve it. We just have to get the right combination of chemicals to add in, and that'll change everything. If you are someone who is a moralist, who just kind of reduces everything to the ethical and, the, and what's right and wrong, kind of a black and white thinker about life, then when you hear someone who's saying, um, I, I can't believe my life is falling apart, you're probably your response is, well, okay, so... Have you confessed your sins? You must be sinning to have this happen. And if you're somebody who just reduces everything to the psychological, you just say, okay, just kind of vent your feelings and let's just talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. I'm not going to, ju- I'm not going to do it. And, and if at some point in time, you'll process enough and maybe get out of this. But if you are the God who has wisdom and compassion like no other, you realize there are physical, spiritual, psychological, social issues that are going on, and you masterfully weave them all together to care for your creator, uh, cre- creature, the one you've made in your image. Isn't that amazing what God does in this passage? I think it's a good, holistic way for us to understand how God works with us. So God has amazing, compassionate wisdom in this story. And then he has also an approachable presence. Who is the real God, the true God? So, I don't know if you realize this, Mount Horeb is uh, where Elijah ran to. And that is actually the same mountain as Sinai. It's just two different names in the Old Testament. And Elijah runs there... Because that is where, on Sinai, God met Moses. And Elijah puts himself in a cave, kind of like how Moses put himself in the cleft of a rock. 
and wanted to see and asked for, show me your glory, God. And God, at that time, <laughs> in uh, the book of Exodus, says, I, you can't handle my glory. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to put my hand over your eyes. I'm going to pass before you. And after I get by, I'm going to let you see my back backside. My hinder parts, I think, is the way like King James says. And God says, that's how I want to be known to you. Not by my power and amazing might, but by my approachable side, my humble side, my lesser side, in a sense, but my fullness as well. And Elijah gets the same treatment in a different way. And so God comes to Elijah. It's an amazing story, isn't it? And he first comes with wind and just blows everything apart. Then after that, an earthquake and then finally fire. And each time it says, and the Lord was not in the fire, in the wind, in the earthquake. He wasn't in the earthquake, wind, or fire. You see my 70s reference there? <laughs> and then God shows up in a gentle whisper of a voice. And Elijah takes his cloak and wraps himself out and comes out from the cave. And that was a typical Hebrew response to being in the presence of God is to kind of wrap your presence because you know you can't handle it. When he heard the voice, he knew that is the true God. And he comes out to listen and to talk to him. What is God doing with earthquake, wind, and fire coming and not being in them, even though he causes them, and then coming as a still, small voice or a gentle whisper. I think he's teaching Elijah. He's saying, you know, I can overwhelm you. I can blow you away with the power that I have. I can burn you up. I can shake you to your core. But that's not who I want to be to you or to be anyone in this world. You think I come in power and glory and that that's going to change anyone? You found out at Mount Carmel it didn't. It didn't. But when I come to you, I'm going to come to you in a way that I can have a relationship with you and that can actually transform your life and I'm going to be with you. God whispers to Elijah because he wants to get close to Elijah. The way God wants to speak to us is the way of that gentle whisper. And he doesn't need to be any louder than that because he's right, right by you. He's not at a distance where he has to shout. He's not somewhere else that he has to be flashy. He can speak his word, his gentle word to you. I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. I love you. Nothing will ever separate me from you. I am with you in the valley. I'm with you in the storm. I'm with you in the wilderness. You know, it's amazing to me. Still today, I think there are a lot of people who look at God and expect God to show up 
in power and amazing might and just knock heads and change people's lives? Why can't he just show up? And so the world keeps shouting and the devil keeps yelling and screaming. And all God has to do is speak his word of promise to you. And that's more powerful than any other word out there. Now, if you are in this season of Christmas time, when everybody else seems to be joyful in the midst of despondency, or you're brokenhearted or lonely, this is what's amazing about the scriptures and the true God, where it says things like this in Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. That's the true God. That's how you know he's the true God. Isaiah, another prophet of God, he spoke about how God is going to bring justice to the nations, how he's going to show his truth and put things to right. But he's going to do it in a way that looks so different from every other way that everybody else expects. He's going to do it through his servant whom he upholds. And Isaiah 42 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. God's servant is not pushy or proud, demanding or forcing anyone to anything. And yet he still is able to bring about justice. Actually, it's the only way justice is ever going to be brought to this world. I don't know if you know that that verse, Isaiah 42.1, was one spoken by the Father himself over his son at Jesus' baptism in the Gospels. Behold, my son in whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. He combines Psalm 2, verse 7 with Isaiah 42, verse 1, and says, yes, he's king, but he's going to be a servant king. And he is going to bring about justice in this world. And you see how Jesus is God's still small voice, his gentle whisper in this world. He comes into this world in the cry of a baby in Bethlehem. And he lives a life of humble service in such a way that nobody would think he had power and might in his own. And he never claimed it for himself. All his authority, all his power came from his father. He was a servant through and through to the point of death upon a cross. Isn't it amazing? And through this still small whisper, God with us, he brings about justice in this world. By facing the injustice of this world, by suffering for us in our place through his bloody cross, through his death, we are saved. God can come in power and might and glory and fire and earthquake and wind in whatever way he wants. He has all those attributes. That is who our God is. But he has chosen to come to you and to me in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, in our struggles, in our pains, as that still small voice because of his love for us. Truth of the matter in this story, God never let Elijah down. Elijah's own expectations let Elijah down. 
Elijah expected, he was way overly optimistic about his plans and his vision of how the world was going to change through power and glory and through a show of God's might at Mount Carmel. Way overly optimistic that such a spectacular feat would do something. And then he was way overly pessimistic about the results. Instead of realizing, as God said, there are 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to this Baal. I am keeping them my own. My kingdom is still working. And by the way, Elijah, I'm going to give you a partner in ministry. His name is Elisha. He will come alongside of you and befriend you. And I will even use a pagan king, Hazael, of Syria to do my work. And I will also bring in Jehu to do it. Don't you worry, Elijah. My ways are still being accomplished even though you don't see them. So when you're in a desert, when you want to be holed up in a cave, when you are having a nervous breakdown, when things are falling apart, when everything seems to be going the wrong way, Realize God is with you. He will bring people around you to minister to you like angels. To all your physical needs. He will listen to you. He will work with you. Are you listening to him? Are you in his word? Are you in a home huddle? In fellowship with others where you can hear his gentle whisper of a voice? Don't expect it in the spectacular. He doesn't have to show up in those ways. He wants to show up in the intimacy of personal relationships in his words of promise written for you. Because God is with you in the wilderness. God's great compassionate wisdom is yours in God's approachable presence. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you this day for your work. In Elijah's life, uh, profoundly different than what he expected, and yet more profoundly amazing and compassionate than he ever anticipated. Thank you, God, that you are with us even when we're falling apart, that you are more with us in that. I pray that you would teach us how to be for each other and with each other, Lord, during those times. That you would use us as ministering angels to each other, as messengers of mercy. That you would give us listening ears and compassionate hearts to meet and serve people in their both their physical, emotional, psychological needs, and especially their spiritual needs, and that we just are your caregivers, Lord. And you are the cure giver. Thank you, Lord, for your compassionate wisdom that we see in Jesus Christ. And how he went through brokenness and despair to give us life. All through his cross, we thank you for these things. Bless us now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive you. All of you, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Bless our hearts as we worship you and give of the bounty that you've given in our lives for the sake of your kingdom work. All this we pray in your name. Amen.